Welcome to Copy Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. I'm Tamir Beck, Chief Economist, welcoming you to our 92nd episode, the first one of 2023. And what better way to kick off the year than to talk about the outlook for markets with a seasoned trader and strategist. Archana Parikh is the head of Asia Equities ex-Japan at Ballyasney Asset Management. She's new to Ballyasney, having joined in November of last year, and she's based here in their Singapore office. Previously, Archana worked at Millennium, where she was a senior portfolio manager covering global tech, media, telecom, and financial sectors. Prior to Millennium, she was at Seatown Holdings and Temasek Holdings. Archana serves on the board of trustees for Stanford University's Graduate School of Business Trust, 100 Women in Finance, United Women Singapore, among others. I don't know, Archana, where do you find the time? But welcome to Kofi Time. Hi, Tamur. It's so nice of you to have me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Absolutely. So let's start with your assessment on the rather stark sell-off that took place in the global markets last year. You were on the sidelines of the market most of the time. Great timing. But for the markets, was it just about time or was it unfortunate timing? No, it felt like it was about time, in, not so much in that it was predisposed, but I think with interest rates and monetary policy being so accommodative because of COVID for so long, it was only a matter of time before those accommodations had to be taken away. And each country did it at a different pace, but in many ways, the U.S. market sets the tone globally. And so as soon as those accommodations are taken away, you know, some of that... Um, inflated set of asset prices have to come down. So whether it's crypto, tech, stocks, private markets, um, credit spreads, you know, all of it had to sort of take some of the air out. And so it makes sense that it happened. But it was pretty correlated, right? So we normally don't see fixed income and equity sell off in such tandem. So all those 60-40 investment strategies, you know, paid off zero and massively negative last year. Um, that is rare. Uh, so do you think it was just the whole stagflation panic that caused both sides to sell off in such a dramatic manner? I mean, it's rare in a sense, but if you look at it, they both also went up together. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was pretty correlated on the way up and pretty correlated on the way down, which I think tells you that it has a lot more to do really with monetary policy than Stagflation, if you're going to pump out a lot of money, there's a lot of assets to buy and people buy them. And then when you take all the money away, then they have to sell them. So, I mean, I hate to sound flippant or simplistic, but it really did feel like the punch bowl got taken away. It is unfortunate that correlation has become so high, but I feel like we have been saying correlation between bonds and equities has become positive and high for quite a few episodes in this last decade. And my guess is that probably has to do with the overwhelming impact of monetary policy in this last decade, and maybe a bit longer than a decade, which is from GFC to now, we've lived in a pretty unprecedented era of very supportive monetary policy action. And it does distort these relationships and the fundamentals uh, between these different security types. Right. I mean, other than commodities, I just can't think of any asset class last year 
that was an area where you could hide for a prolonged period of time. Um, so, Arsena, with that setting in mind, the punch bowl being taken away, and 2023 uh, would be a year where the punch bowl, I suppose, stays away for the time being. So what's your sense? We've started 23 with some cautious optimism at Fed relenting, China reopening, and I guess the biggest relief is also on the energy side. So what's your take on all this? You know, I think I'm I'm pretty constructive on 2023. So I think there's a few factors. One is um, positioning. And positioning is important. It matters who owns what at the starting point to determine how it's going to do over the year, in addition to the fundamental and macroeconomic changes. So last year, everybody owned everything. And then the punch bowl gets taken away. And so it becomes extremely unpleasant because everyone's trying to stop owning things. And so there's the first seller effect, there's the late seller effect, there's the unwind. Companies that everybody loved and therefore more people owned sometimes suffer more because more people are needing to sell it versus something that was horrible. Nobody owned it. And, you know, stock held up because there's not that many sellers. So I think this year the good news is positioning is cleaner. People largely own what they want to or what they absolutely could not get rid of. And so that's a nicer starting point. And I think the second is that the action of taking the punch bowl away is largely done. There's a little bit more taking away, but most of it is done. People know it's going to happen. And then the other uncertainties, which was what will China do? Um, what will Japan do on YCC? Um, what is European inflation going to look like? A lot of these deeply unknown things are better known now. I think even um, the dynamics around the conflict with uh, Ukraine, there are reasons to be optimistic around some format of coming to an arrangement in the course of this year is a possibility versus last year it was an explosion of a problem. So I'm constructive because of these these few things. Let's uh, talk about this, you know, rates issue a little bit. Uh, so as you pointed out, you know, that was the proverbial punch ball that was taken away last year. QT will continue through this year even if the Fed sort of stops hiking nominal rates. So Arjuna, when we wrote the first piece for 2023, we called 2023 was the year of rising real interest rates because inflation will come down, but the Fed won't cut and we will see real interest rates rise through the course of the year. Now, the fixed income market is convinced that the Fed will be forced to cut interest rates at some point this year. And I think that probably is also feeding into that uh, buoyancy into the market. Could the markets continue to rally even if the Fed manages to convince everybody that they're not cutting rates this year? No, I don't think so. So I agree. Like I was looking at Fed fund rates, right? Uh, but year end 24 are targeted to be 3%. Yeah. Okay, which seems to me a very, very benign and generous interpretation of the path forward. It seems super unlikely to me at the present moment based on their messaging. And I think it's better to prepare for a higher for longer path in this year. So does that mean markets can rally? I 
think the elimination of a drag is constructive. Mm -hmm. But does that mean we go back? I don't think so. So I don't think, I think that muscle memory of by the day, but this is the bottom and therefore it's going up. I think we have to look back to much older time periods to see that there can be two, three years where the market does nothing much. It's not just down or just up. There's a lot of sideways. We just aren't used to it. Our generation isn't used to it because for the last 10, 15 years, it was much more directional than that. Um, I suspect that's where it looks like we may be. And it's also very interesting because what are we hoping for? Bad news is good news, i.e. if there's a really bad recession, then they pivot, then that's good news. I mean, look, I don't think it's going to work out quite that same way. And I think the third factor around this is as China reopens, this steadily downward ticking inflation that we've seen since November, is it going to just keep going down? Are we going to see a little bit of a blip up again and then down? And is that going to create some panics? So I think in this year, I wouldn't look at it necessarily as, oh, they will pivot. I, that seems difficult to imagine. If they do, it's probably due to some really horrific circumstances. Right. Which will be bad in and of themselves. And therefore, if they don't pivot, it's better to just prepare for they'll stay. And we have to now worry about the longer they stay at a higher interest rate, who has the balance sheets and the liability structures and the credit quality and the funding costs to survive this higher for longer? And that's where it's interesting to see the differentiation between uh, companies. Absolutely. I think I think absolutely spot on. And I really like your good news is bad news uh, point, uh, because if the markets believe that inflation is turning a corner and it rallies a lot, that means financial conditions ease, which then negates some of the Fed rate hikes. And that kind of compels the Fed to stay actually on the higher side for longer, um, just to sort of slow things down and make monetary policy work. So again, I, th I think today's chart of the week that we have addresses exactly that issue. So thanks for bringing that up. Uh, Arjuna, you were talking about positioning. And of course, last year or the last three, four years, the big positioning has been on the tech side. Uh, and, and some of the cleansing has taken place. One could argue there is more cleansing to be done in certain parts of the sector and spy no means out of the woods. But interesting differentiation that U.S. tech having sold off in 22 is beginning to show some signs of life. But the tech sector that is really roaring right now is the China tech. Uh, six months ago, when I traveled around the world, question was, is China even touchable? Is China investable? And now no one can get enough of China. So your sense of this, you know, sort of just the tech sector and the current state and looking forward, especially the China versus US issue. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think, let's go back whether whether it's China versus US first generally on the tech sector, right? I think in a general sense, the tech sector now has to be treated it was a special baby. Like it it was behaving in ways where it was very differentiated and very special before. Special in that it could trade at price to sale multiples. It was all about growth. It was a lot about personality types and a lot about breaking into new markets. And that those things were being rewarded in a way that was perhaps a little out of proportion. And I think now it goes back to being like any other sector, which is, are you good at the price that you're at? 
Are you going to deliver on the performance metrics, whether it is growth or whether it is profitability or it is better management of your costs or your balance sheet? And I think some of the companies are really adapting pretty well to it and articulating for investors how they manage to contain costs, where they plan to grow, how that growth is going to be done in a prudent way. And now it remains to be seen, can they actually do it? Because they have not had to do it, again, for more than a decade. So you tell me you're going to make things effective. Do you know how to take the punch bowl away from the way your company operates? Are you going to be able to deliver that in a reasonable time frame? Then I think there's this second set of companies, right, which are, they were over-penalized. So there was fundamental bad news, you know, things weren't going well for them because they was, let's say, COVID beneficiaries. And then the year after reopen, they were horribly penalized because they were no longer COVID beneficiaries. And many multiples go back to even pre-COVID times because they're like, oh, everybody bought your stuff in COVID, but now they don't want it anymore. And then will they just come back to normalcy? Because there's always a base effect. So in, in, in COVID years, if your revenues or profitability went up 100x, uh, 100%, and then last year it fell 50%, well, this year, even a 5% growth is enough to make your stock slightly go up. So I think there is that second category, which could be quite interesting. They were very out of favor on reopen, maybe over-penalized, and maybe therefore will work. And then, of course, there's the third category, which is you're down a lot, but that may not be the end of it. That's not enough because it was a very artificially inflated story. You, The stock price went up three or four X, and yes, you fell 80%, but that's still 200% over where you started when the whole you know bubble kind of picked up. So I would say you definitely, as you look at these companies, want to say, which bucket are you? Show me over penalized or not penalized enough for what you are. And that's kind of how we think about the tech sector, which is a let's treat it like anything else, whether it's banks or industrials or what have you, no halo effect. And then bucket these companies in this sort of way. Um, as far as the China US dynamic, um, I think it's definitely an important one if you're talking about the tensions between them. Sometimes it sort of spill into the tech sector on what will regulation do either domestically to companies or regulation cross-country uh, cross that affects companies. I think, unfortunately, most of us are in the field are people who look at financial numbers. And so we're not very good at policy predictions or regulatory predictions. It's really, really hard to say how will the US government ultimately respond to TikTok as an example. Right. And therefore, what is the knock-on effect for other similar short video providers in the US like a Snap? Or it's just very, very hard for people like us to predict, except to know again that I would say. Prior to the last two, three years, if you were a tech investor, <clears throat> you thought regulatory risk was not a factor in your sector, with the exception of M&A and um, uh, you know, competition risk and whether it would be approved or not approved because you had too much market power. Absent that, you never really thought about cross-country bans, 
or that a government might think that you have too much um, uh, pricing power or you're doing something unfairly and therefore I can actually meaningfully eat away into your business model. So that's a new thing. You know, I think people who did financials or defense sector, even healthcare, were much more conversant with those ideas that the government can change or policy agencies can change the outcome for your companies. And so again, it's a great growing up phase for people in this sector. Does that growing up phase create some scarring among investors as well as on CEOs? I'm thinking really with China in mind. Of course, you know, in the US, for example, Facebook or Meta is getting penalized by European Union one day, and now Apple's 30% fee on the App Store is under scrutiny. But just the sort of dramatic regulatory crackdown that we saw in China in 21 and most of 22. Uh, do you fear that that sort of takes out a whole generation of Chinese entrepreneurs? Like they don't want to touch this stuff anymore? Uh, yeah, I think so. I, I saw this very interesting chart which said that if you looked at the valuation of tech stocks and you look at the number of uh, kids in colleges uh, doing computer science major, it's like the exact same line. So you can literally overlay it. So yeah, for sure. And I think when any anytime there's a boom bust in an industry, you definitely see talent moving away from that particular sector. And I, I can imagine that happening uh, to some extent in China. I also think it's a huge benefit to um, the neighboring regions of China because you'll see a lot of Chinese entrepreneurs maybe interested in setting up in other parts of the world. These are obviously people who are well out of school and either have a company or going to have a company. And I don't mean it's a benefit in the sense of a zero-sum game. I don't mean... I mean, nobody wants it to be a benefit like to the detriment of China. I think it's a very positive thing for Asia as a whole to have that level of cross-pollination on that kind of entrepreneurial zest, which is uniquely Chinese, right? I mean, it's it's magic in a bottle that they've had and it's really admirable quality that they have. And it would be nice to see that um, enthusiasm infect the rest of Asia by seeing these people who come and you're amazed at the risks they take. You're amazed at the foresight they have. Um, and so, yeah, that's a wonderful, positive silver lining that comes out of sometimes a very difficult situation for the last two years. Um, but I would say in terms of taking the talent out, again, this is one of those higher for longer situations, which is if this is the end of the regulatory tumult in China or a bulk of it, I can see people seeing that as a one-time reset and still going back to it. If this remains a permanent state of anxiety, I think it would create more issues. So when I talk to friends and colleagues who are from mainland China and who live there now or you know are very conversant, many of them also see some of these changes as quite positive. Like they were, there were views that, yeah, some merchants were having a difficult time with the level of power platforms had, or some students were in a difficult situation because of the amount of after-school education. So I think there is a popularism to some of these policies that when we sit outside, we may not appreciate uh, how popular they could be with people who live in the country. 
And um, therefore, they don't just view it in this one-sided way as, oh, it was bad. It's just the same as like when TikTok was taken away from India. We can view it as being market unfriendly, but there is some group of people that find it quite the right decision inside the country. So, you know, our views inside and outside can be quite different. Right, indeed. Uh, to your first point, I'm actually really fascinated by that point that the Chinese entrepreneurs, if indeed they see some degree of limitation of opportunities or limitation of growth in the mainland, then they take their know-how and try to expand their horizon around the world. I think of that not only in terms of their know-how, but also in terms of capital, that, you know, all this China plus talk that is going on, but we have this regional comprehensive economic partnership in ASEAN and North Asia, which allows Chinese companies with as much as 40% value added to build elsewhere and then export it under that country's made-in name. So I think that is a huge incentive for Chinese capital also to flow in the region. And to your point, it's not a zero sum. It's a, it's a win-win for everybody. Um, so speaking of that, that the, you know, the win-win part and the regional benefits. So what's your sense of the ASEAN stocks for 2023? Um, you know, I think ASEAN, like India, has had a huge benefit in 2022 because other markets in Asia have had issues of their own. And so if you look at them, they haven't nearly um, had the same level of distress or even sell-off, and many of them ended up for the year versus the rest of Asia, but also versus the rest of the world. To some extent, it's a bit like Mexico, right? Mm -hmm. It became a beneficiary of certain trends, whether it's... Um, diversification of supply chains or whatever, whatever uh, uh, all the various reasons. And therefore, in a year where um, China and Japan and potentially um, the semiconductor companies that are Korea-Taiwan heavy all see some version of it's been too oversold or there's a reopen or we're reigniting monetary policy or tech inventories have come down to, an, you know, starting to destock enough where there's interest again. I think capital flows to those areas to an extent because the setup is great. The setup is these are cheap, they didn't perform, and there's a lot of good news ahead. And so to that extent, I think just from a larger picture, ASEAN and India will, I'm not saying they'll be negative, but where one thing may perform a lot, the other will perform a little less um, because they've had their time in the sun and something else has to happen. So if you ask me, that's my feeling. I'm very constructive on Asia in general, but within Asia, some places did well last year and I think other places will do better this year. Luckily in the job that I do, we're not in the business of uh, predicting what our market will do, which to a large extent feels like a fool's errand because it's based on what I know today, which will definitely change in like just a week. Um, and we are in the agnostic business. So let's just figure out which company is better than the other and then, you know, pair them up well. Um, but yeah, that's how it feels. It feels that those who suffered last year should benefit this year. 
Sure. And, uh, you know, even beyond the macro theme, as you said, you know, from a positioning perspective, I mean, people have been just so long U.S. stocks the last few years, uh, and we had so many uncertainties around 2022. Uh, perhaps there is some degree of greater clarity in terms of, you know, regional diversification. That also makes sense. Um, you were mentioning YCC at the beginning of this conversation. I didn't really follow up on that. So I just wanted to take an opportunity to go there for a second. Japan is a very large holder of U.S. Treasuries. Japan is a very large investor in the U.S. And all of a sudden, in the last, say, four or five weeks, we are seeing the yen snap back and appreciate. Huge expectation of abandoning the YCC, which means yields going up in Japan. So is there a you know, scenario under which Japanese investors start showing tremendous home bias, something that they haven't shown in a very long time? I, I think so, perhaps at the end of it. Um, because let's say YCC is happening and Japanese yields are rising. It's actually not a great time to be long Japanese bonds, right? Because the bond price is coming off. So you actually don't want to do that. So there's no home bias to start with. And then, as you rightly said, the expectation for YCC is huge. I mean, I see numbers like, oh, it's supposed to go from half point all the way up to 2%. But that's a big move. Uh, and of course, that's very forward-looking from some economists that I read. Um, and then there are much more modest ones. Um, if that's the case, what you really want to do is um, wait. You want to wait for that. Um, I mean, you want to be a payer, not a receiver, right? So I think the home bias may turn up at the end if they actually achieve some real yields and move things. Now, on the flip side, it's always a relative game. If the rate move in the U.S. is done, you know, could we see it to be less attractive to continue to hold on to your treasuries? Yeah, but for the moment, they're paying so well. So it's hard to imagine it switching right off the bat. Right, right. Uh, Arjun, I just want to talk a little bit about Japanese tech. I mean, we've always talked about, you know, emerging Korean tech and Taiwan supremacy and the chip cycle and, of course, China. And, and Japan is almost like an afterthought. But it seems to me recently, and maybe this is just my own sort of, you know, recency bias, I'm seeing increasing headlines of that the top end of the technology spectrum, the Japanese sort of showing signs of excellence again, and top Japanese companies doing some very interesting strategic partnership with their counterparts in the U.S. and so on. Uh, you look at it far deeper than I do. Would you like to weigh in on this? You know, I think what's interesting is that Japan has always had this sort of super advantage on industrial tech. And it's been like beyond um, beyond excellent. And you see a lot of um, industrials, consumer people, very enamored by their tech. But you're absolutely right. I think it is a second... Also, it's a second coming of age in the sense that it's always been very, very good. But I think it also stands out more on the stage now. I think they're, again, pushing a lot more boundaries in terms of entrepreneurship, in terms of partnership, in terms of being uh, galvanized towards taking greater risk. I think there's also less crowding out effect of their very large neighbor, China, uh, in doing it. And I think also a lot of the specialty is coming in areas that uh, customers, clients, and partners want to see diversification of who they partner with. 
And the last but not the least is, you know, very sort of um, basic. Again, I read that productivity adjusted Japanese labor is now amongst the cheapest. And so, I mean, in, in, it's cheaper than some of its neighbors. If that's the case, you know, so you add all those things together, I think it makes a ton of sense for it to shift. Now, the yen is going to appreciate. Um, there's a huge wage inflation pressure in Japan. So it's not going to hold for a long time. But it's a great partner with a tremendous tradition of excellence in almost everything it does. So it's not surprising that this would emerge as well. Right. Um, okay, so we had talked about China Tech earlier. We also touched on China reopening. But just your overall long-term outlook for Chinese stocks. I mean, you already have pointed out that, you know, you're not geography specific, you're geography agnostic, and you're looking at companies. But I'm sure you not only look at China Tech, but you're looking at the full spectrum of Chinese companies. Uh, do they look healthy? Are they burdened with too much debt? Um, will they still deliver interesting innovation and economies of scale? What's your overall sense? Yeah, I mean, I'm very, I'm constructive on China in the sense that, um, they will deliver on innovation over time, right? This is not a situation that's, you know, 1.3, 1.4 billion people with a hugely STEM background, with huge amount of capability, ambition, and also big path of GDP per capita development over the years. So I think they will. I think um, in the near term also, I'm pretty constructive because it's been so beaten up and they're delivering so much good news, both in terms of reopen, but also in terms of measures to support different parts of the economy, whether it's the property sector or um, just overall growth, et cetera. What I think is the path is gonna be a bit choppy because you're exactly right that there's pockets of um, debt, balance sheet, backlog of issues, a backstock of inventory, um, it's unclear to see whether um, the distribution of consumer balance sheet is even or uneven, and is it much more uneven, et cetera. And what I mean by that as an example is that, you know, a lot of people thought that the Chinese consumer coming out of this COVID set of, uh, what is it, zero COVID policies would not be quite as well off but once we looked at the math, actually they are. They have managed to save an incremental another 30%. Part of that is because they pulled money out of markets and they put them into deposits. And therefore, we look at deposit growth and we say, wow, that's a big jump. If you look at it, even if you look at the aggregate, it is a jump. And now the question becomes, how will they spend this money? So if it is super well distributed uh, across income spectrums, then it's a big boost. If it's you know very concentrated, then it's a boost only to certain things. So I think in the near term, you kind of want to look at the pockets of distribution. Again, in property is the same thing, right? Some companies are actually in very good shape and some are deeply troubled. So what percentage of the backlog is sitting with the deeply troubled? And therefore, what, what percentage of consumers do not get their apartments or get them much, much more delayed. So I think it is a choppy path. You have to navigate it with a lot of information, with a lot of data, and quite carefully. Overall, I think, though, the setup is pretty constructive. The one thing we definitely watch for is the demographics. So we passed the peak. Household formation is minus 3 to 5% estimated going forward. 
per annum. And so there's definitely a very big shift in the economy and where you would want to invest um, going forward as well. Yeah, I think that last point that, you know, the China's tremendous contribution to the world, say from 2000 or 2020, was the disinflation impulse and that, you know, huge labor force keeping costs down for global manufacturing. That shoe, I think, is not going to be filled again. And then that's a certain question from my side or the macro side, you know, what happens to the inflation dynamic structurally? And I suppose from your side, from a company profitability perspective, you know, how do they, you know, keep on doing productivity enhancement when what labor costs was going to become such an issue? Um, Arjuna, innovation. Uh, I'm sure, just like me, you spent some part of your holiday asking ChatGPT all sorts of questions, <laughs> asking it to write poems and goodbye speeches and stuff like that. It is jaw-dropping, right? And uh, and then, of course, you know, I've been using Dali too to do all sorts of painting. Uh, so wave of innovation in the space of machine learning and artificial intelligence. It's always been happening, but it seems like we've reached some sort of a, an inflection point. Uh, is there an investment theme around such cutting-edge technology? You know, I think yes and no. So what happens is the yes part is that there's a lot of existing companies on the periphery of this. So is it like Microsoft's going to buy it and that's interesting? Or is it that, um, you know, company X is going to make all the chips for it and then it's going to become a huge end demand for the chip makers? Just the way, you know, chip makers used to make chips for, I don't know, compu um, personal computers. And then... Smartphones came and that was a huge new end market while computing kept along. And then cars came and they become a huge end market and data centers came. And, you know, so if you recall, if you've been tracking semis for a while, you know that at one point they were like horribly cyclical because there was only one end market. And then they became a bit more structurally attractive because there were lots of end markets. And this may be another one. And with each new end market, they need, seem to need even more chip content than the previous one, uh, which is shocking. So I can see how, you know, there are these peripheral things. Maybe there are more data centers. Maybe there are more even things like server farms or like coolant makers or who knows what they need. So I think there are peripherals. Is there one that is, uh, you know, what we all really want is one large public listed or two large public listed companies that only do this, right? So like a pure uh, a pure play. That unfortunately doesn't quite exist yet. Um, I'm sure it's going to come reasonably soon. Let's just ask ChatGPT what they think when it's going to come. Um, but I think that is very interesting. And we're all, I mean, we're all kind of eagerly awaiting that. But if you recall when cloud came out, like what's the proxy what's the proxy and then there was this etf which was all cloud companies or it's the same i think it's the same evolution in three four years yes there will be right i i heard somebody saying that you know any company that has even tangential relationship to this will start calling this of dot ai dot ai and then people right. will start giving their premium around that that's exactly right um it's interesting and it'll become its next own uh, little mini boom that's right um, now, during the conversation that I've had with you, I think you have underscored the complexity of the, you know, investment environment, which of course would suggest that, you know, people should keep their money with active managers because it's not a time for passive investing. Is that a correct read on what I'm hearing from you, that you would much rather tell the whole world to go for active managers than just staying with the indexes out there? 
you know, obviously I'm coming to it with a bias. Right? I'm an active manager. I work at a firm that is uh, that actively manages, and I currently work in a in a strategy um, which is diversified, um, you know, market neutral funds, which has, I think, in the last few years, really demonstrated its relevance by being able to significantly outperform any passive product. So being up in an up market, being up in a down market. So of course, I think, yes, if you're on the cutting edge of um, investing as an allocator, I can totally see and what, what one would see is more conversations about allocating to these sort of more leading edge active uh, funds who invest in data, who invest in technology, who invest in people. And, you know, it's a huge differentiator who are diversified across equities and macro and commodities and therefore can produce these outcomes for those types of people, um, those kinds of institutions, actually. Um, It makes a tremendous amount of sense. Now, if I look at it just as an individual like you and me and investing our personal uh, money, I also see that it's very difficult to access these super high-end, um, high-end I mean by percentiles of performance return, the high-end percentiles, it's hard to access them as an individual. And then if you're choosing between, you know, kind of active, let's say the mutual fund category versus the passive ETF category, um, and this is just my personal opinion, Personally, I like in that choice passive just because it has lower fees. And long term, you know, we're all constructive about equities working. And therefore, this is what I do personally in in a very personal manner. Of course, if you have access to uh, funds that can perform at the top end percentile, then active is the way to go. Right, right. But I mean, we have seen, you know, innumerable fi- studies in finance which show that over the long term the plain vanilla mutual funds have a very hard time outperforming uh, the index but uh, that doesn't of course include the you know, sort of the frontier Market mutual yeah exactly uh, hedge funds and so on which some of them not all of them some of them have of course returned significantly superior uh, performances uh, over the longer term um okay We've talked a lot about markets. I, I want to hear one thing about you as a professional. I mean, you've spent uh, parts of your career looking at credit markets, uh, especially during your Temasek days. And lately, you have been focused on equities in the current and the last job in particular. So what's your take on managing portfolio risks across these sort of asset classes? I have to say, I found credit a lot easier because it's purely mathematical. <laughs> um, and the thing is that in credit, you're worried about capital preservation and in equities you're worried about growth um you know so in a way as they say credit is about trust and equity is about hope and um i think both are super exciting and especially in uh, let's say a year like last year truly both were super exciting because credit for a long time becomes very dull because if uh, the central banks just want to pump money Credit becomes so well priced and so rich, and you know every bond's giving you like three percent. And what's there to do? Um, of course, I say this as not a um, credit person uh, now in the relative value sense. There's always something to do on a relative value sense. Um, 
So both are exciting. I think what is very interesting, and I would strongly advocate this to whoever does it, is try over time to invest or learn or at least understand the relationships between the various different parts of the capital structure. Because it's good to be able to say, is this actually an attractive time for equity? That doesn't mean you don't invest in equity. It may mean that you're a bit more short rather than long. Or it may mean that you stay on the sidelines a bit more. And vice versa, if credit is fully priced, then you might have to move to equity. But you realize that you're taking greater risk in which part of the capital structure you're in. If there's a huge dislocation, you can be in credit because credit pays you more than equity and you don't have to take the hope risk. So it's all very interesting, the interplay. And I think, of course, FX and monetary policy also become an important thing to understand in the, the interaction between the two. Both are fun. I think equities is for, more for optimists, though, I will say. Credit. Which I am, so I quite enjoy it. <laughs> Credit for trust and equities for hope. I think I'm going to quote you on that one, even if that's not an original quote. That's a good one. I like it very much. Um, Arjuna, before we end, one final question. You are one of the 100 women in finance. When you go to gatherings of buy-side professionals five years ago versus now, hopefully with the reopening, you are actually going to some gatherings like that. Are you seeing more women in finance than before? In five years, no. I think over 15, yeah. So I think there is movement. I don't know. It feels like in the last four or five years, nothing much changed. And maybe that's just because it's not enough time. Um, but I definitely, you know, what I find really interesting is I see more women on these shows. I see more women quoted in financial articles. I see more of them on cover. So maybe part of it is also I live in Singapore, so I don't see as many. Um, I see more frequency of stories of this person started a fund and she happens to be a woman uh, or this person had a great year and she happens to be a woman. So it's, it's interesting. I also see it further down. I see more female analysts. Good. I see more female portfolio managers. I mean, I'm pretty stunned when I came here to be like, think there's five in Asia, which is a very big number, um, you know, just a little shy of a third, which is staggering. And, you know, I, I didn't know about that, which is fantastic. So I like that. I like those things. Good. It's arcing in the right direction. Yeah, it's moving. It's not moving as fast as we all would want it to, but it's definitely moving. There's so much more awareness. And people are more cognizant. I think more people want to be allies. And I think all of us are kind of looking around and thinking, you know, how do you move the needle faster and bigger? I don't know if you have any great ideas you have to tell us. I think what you're doing is actually the right way of doing it. And as you correctly said, these things don't happen just like that because you want it to happen. It takes time. It starts at the school level and the mentorship and everything that is in the education system then sort of spills over into the network one builds in the professional level. And everything that I just said right now, you know that already. So there you go. I think that's right. right? I mean, at one point, there were no women in colleges and now there are more women in colleges than men. I mean, not that we're going for that goal. And at one point, there were very few female doctors or lawyers or accountants or Supreme Court judges. And now there's more and more. And, you know, I have the same confidence that whatever amount of time it took, we'll take less time, but it will eventually happen because it happens everywhere. I mean, we're much better off today than we were before and it'll probably keep continuing. Excellent. 
So Arjuna, I told you before we did the podcast that my last podcast was with Dr. Doom, Nurul Rubini, and mm-hmm. you had to contrast his pessimism with your optimism. And I don't think I needed to tell you that because you've done that so well. So thank you so much for your time and super constructive insights. Thank you so much for having me, Tamar. Always fun to have a conversation with you. Pleasure is all mine. And I want to thank our listeners too for listening. Uh, Kopi Time was produced by Ken Delbridge. Daisy Sharma and Violet Lee provided additional assistance. This podcast is for information only and does not offer any specific investment advice. All 92 episodes of Kopi Time are available on YouTube and all major platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. As for our research publications and webinars, you can find them all by Googling DBS Research Library. Have a great day.